0: It was God's provision that rescued the Jews then, and it will be God's provision that rescues us now. It will be the death of Jesus that rescues you and me both now and then. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the Associate Pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Luke tells us in the book of Acts that uh, there were four marks, it seems like four daily marks for the new believers back then as the church, the fledgling church was getting underway. And they were obedience to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and to prayer. And the breaking of bread, most people believe that the breaking of bread is a reference to the Lord's Supper. So they took the Lord's Supper together. In Mark's biography of Jesus this morning in chapter 14, we're moving into Thursday. And uh, other writers who chronicle Jesus' life, they give, us, they give us other events that took place on this day, but Mark does not. He focuses his attention uh, on what is going to happen that evening that is going to be the sharing of the Passover meal at this point, for 1,500 years, the Jews have been celebrating the Passover uh, each year at this time, and uh, and it's always the same. Except tonight, for at least Jesus and his disciples, it's going to be it's going to be something new. For the Jews, the Passover will continue to remind them of the past. It'll continue to remind them of what di- God did there in Egypt with. Uh, with their Egyptian captivity, but for those of us who follow Jesus, it's uh, both Jews and Gentiles night, that night will mark something new, something really significant, a new covenant, and Jesus is going to institute this new covenant uh, in himself and by himself. Mark begins by recording the preparation for the supper. So if you have a Bibles, look at 14 verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lambs, his disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and prepare the Passover so that you may eat it? So he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the city and find a man carrying a jar of water. Uh, Excuse me, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, tell the owner of the house, The teacher says where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready, make the preparations for us there. So the disciples went out and entered the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. I think Jesus uses natural and supernatural means to arrange the Lord's Supper that night, or the Passover, not the Lord's Supper, excuse me, the Passover meal that night. Uh, I think he could have arranged ahead of time with the owner of that house that he's going to rent or use his, his room. But of course, we obviously see here the work of the Spirit. There's going to be some supernatural things taking place. They are going to find a guy carrying water. They're going to follow that guy to the place where they're supposed to go. That's the work of the Spirit. The man they're supposed to meet would be very noticeable to them because men did not carry water. And so when they see a guy doing woman's work, carrying water, they were to follow that guy. It'd be like Jesus saying, hey, find the guy carrying the purse and follow him. Now that might've worked a long time ago. It doesn't really work today though, does it? The preparation for the meal would have been fairly involved since it uh, involved uh, roasting a lamb, unleavened bread, spices, bitter spices, getting them ready, wine. Presumably, it would have taken a good amount of time to complete the preparations for the meal that night. So the disciples most likely started fairly early getting ready. Luke's gospel tells us that the two men that were actually commissioned to go were Peter and John. And uh, so they went to make preparations. Mark and Luke both say that the room that they are to find is going to be a room upstairs. It's going to be, an, it's forever known after this, the upper room. There's going to be a room upstairs where they are going to meet. So let me make application for us from, from this, just these opening verses. And here's, here'd be my first application or my first lesson for us would be this. God directs our paths, but as he does, he calls us to serve. I think that God, just like he had plans for his disciples to go, where to do the preparation, all that kind of thing, right? He has plans for us. He has things that he wants you to do, things that he wants me to do. He's created us and he's gifted us and he's given us his spirit who directs us. But here, listen to this. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, you have to be faithful to serve. You have to be willing to do what God wants you to do. Jesus says to Peter and John, "Go and make preparations." Now I've got it already worked out. I, I've got the room. I know where it's going to be. I'm telling you how to get there. But Peter and John still ha- excuse me, yeah, Peter and John still had to serve that day. So my application will be, what has God called you to? What is God calling you to? What ministry, what service, area of service does God have for you? How is He directing you? Mark's gospel records nothing of what Jesus and the other disciples did that day, except that in verse 17, it says, when evening came, he arrived with the 12. The night would have begun with a ceremonial cleansing. They would have removed all the leaven. They would have sought to remove all the leaven from the room where they were. And then they would have ceremonially cleansed or washed themselves. It was probably at this part of the ceremonial cleansing where Jesus strips himself of his clothes, puts on, a, a, I don't know what, he wraps himself in a towel or whatever he does and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. We read about that in John's gospel. In John's gospel, he washes their feet, has that exchange with Peter, but then after that's over, he teaches them a lesson about servanthood. After everyone is clean and they're sitting at the table, the meal begins. Luke tells us that they, they would have sat down, they sat down, and the first words seem to have been from Jesus at this point, I've looked very forward to sharing this meal with you. And I don't know about you guys, but it kind of sounds like to me that Jesus is being affected by his emotions, You know, I've looked so forward to this meal together. And I think most likely that's because of what he knows is coming next, the rest of the night, the next day, the stress of all that he's going through. But he's looked forward to this night and to this meal. In today's celebration of the Passover, what happens next is they light the Passover candles. I think there'd be no reason not to surmise that that's exactly what's going to happen here that night, that they would have have lit the Passover candles. Jesus, probably since he's leading this meal, probably would have done that as well. Next came the Haggadah, which is the retelling of the story of Passover. Again, I'm I'm telling you where I'm speculating, but I would imagine that Jesus did that this night. I mean, he could have called on someone else. He could have said, hey, Peter, tell us the story of Haggadah. Tell us the story of the Passover. I'm going to tell you the story of the Passover, bare bones. Most of you know it really well, but maybe somebody here doesn't know it. But God has called this man, Abram. And he said, Abram, I want you to leave the home where you are. I'm going to take you to a land and I'm going to make a mighty people out of you. And so Abram follows, follows God to where he calls him. And there God begins to create this people, this family from Abram. God tells Abraham, he changes his name to Abraham, but he calls, he tells him, Hey, listen to what's going to happen. Your descendants are going to be slaves for 400 years in Egypt. And after that, I'm going to bring you back into this, into this land where you are now. And so Abram knew all this, and that's exactly what happened through a number of circumstances. Abram's family is taken to Egypt. I mean, they go voluntarily. It's a good reason for why they go there. But over time, the Egyptians enslaved them. And, and for 400 years, they've been slaves to the Egyptians. I mean, it's a bitter, it's a bitter life. But the time comes and God's going to free them. So he raises up a prophet, a man by the name of Moses. Now Moses, Moses is actually raised in, uh, in the Egyptian king's, Pharaoh's home. But he chooses uh, to join himself to his people, the Jews, rather than be associated with Pharaoh. He ends up having to flee the country. But there, in, back, back home, God gets a hold of him, and he says, hey, Moses, his name was Moses. He says, Moses, I'm going to send you back to free my people. Moses is reluctant, doesn't really want to do it, but, but he goes, and God uses him. And one of the things that Moses does as he returns to Egypt and to the Pharaoh, he says, listen, God says it's time to let my people go. And Pharaoh, those of you who know the story well, he says, no, nah, I'm not letting your people go. And, and so 10, 10 times God sends a negative plague on, on Egypt. Each time God's saying, let my people go, or this is going to happen. And, uh, but the neat thing about the plagues is that the land of Goshen, where the, where the Jews lived, they were spared. I mean, these plagues happened everywhere else in Egypt, but they did not happen where God's people lived until they got to the last plague. And the last plague that was, that was being pronounced, God said, if you don't let my people go, here's what's going to happen. The firstborn of all of Egypt, including in, my, in the land of Goshen, the firstborn of every, Egypt, every Egyptian, they're going to die. And uh, so, uh, of course, Pharaoh doesn't let God's people go at this point. And so that night, the Bible says that an angel of death came across to Egypt and killed the firstborn of every home. Now, the Jews were under this same, they were under this same, what do I call it? Under the same plague? But God told the Jews, he said, listen, here's what I need you to do. If you want to be spared tonight, you need to take a lamb, and you need to sacrifice this lamb, and then you need to take the blood of that lamb, and you need to spread it on the doorpost of your house. And if you'll faith me, if you'll believe me in what I'm telling you, the death angel will pass over your house. And so that's what happened. They, uh, they cooked a meal. God said, hey, get everything ready because after this, he will let you go. And uh, so that night, the death angel came through Egypt and he passed over, thus the term Passover. He passed over the homes of the Jews who had put the blood of the lamb on, uh, on their doorpost. So that night at the Passover meal, Jesus and his disciples would have been sitting around the table and Jesus would have told them that story. I imagine he would have told it in more detail. Following the retelling of the story, they would partake of their first cup of wine that night. Now these were ritual cups, they were symbolic cups. So most likely they didn't guzzle a whole cup of wine with each each setting, although I guess they could have, but they most likely took sips from their cup of wine as they did this. And with each uh, cup of wine, they would recite a blessing and they would recite a verse from the Exodus. And the blessing with this first cup went like this, "'Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine.'" And, uh, and then they would quote this from the Exodus, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. After the first cup of wine, they would sing the first half of the Hallel Psalms. Y'all remember we talked about the Hallel Psalms this summer. Y'all remember that? The Hallel Psalms were the Psalms related to the Passover. They were 13 through 16. They would sing 13 and 14 at this point. Um, they may have sang them all together. They say that it could be that there might be a leader. One person might sing them, and, other, and the other folks present would, would sing hallelujah in response to the person singing the psalm. So Jesus may have sang Psalms 13 and 14, 113 and 114, and everyone else may have said hallelujah. Or maybe they all sang together. They may have sang Psalm 113, hallelujah, give, they may, they would have sang Psalm 113, hallelujah, give praise, servants of the Lord, praise the name of the Lord, let the name of the Lord be blessed both now and forever from the rising of the sun to its setting, let the name of the Lord be praised. The song would have been followed by a second ritual. They would have sung these songs and then drank another cup of wine. The second cup, the blessing went like this. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has created the fruit of the vine. We just heard that, right? That would have been the same blessing again. But then they would have read this scripture. I will deliver you from their bondage. And it has been tradition for generations, and again, we can assume that maybe Jesus and his disciples did this. At this point, someone would would quote or or mention all 10 of the plagues. They would name the 10 plagues uh, out loud. Again, Jesus may have done that. So here's my second applicational lesson for us from what's happened so far. It would be this. The Passover reminds us that it's about God's provision and not about our performance. I believe one of the reasons why God would would set up a meal. So there'd be a remembrance meal after this. This is what they're doing. They're, taking, they're, they're doing the Passover, which is a remembrance meal commemorating what happened that first Passover. And I think the reason why God sets up this meal is to remind them that their salvation wasn't about how good they were, or about how much they performed, about what a great war they fought to get free from Egypt. The purpose of the meal was to remind them that it was about God's provision not their their abilities and I think that's true for us today it's not about our performance the lesson one I just got through telling y'all is that God has plans for us but you need to be faithful you and I need to be faithful at servants as servants and as serving at serving but uh, that's lesson one but but that doesn't change the fact that when it comes to salvation it's all about God's provision for us not about our our abilities, our performance, how good we do. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. All of us have sinned. All of us have earned death, and I can't arrest it or stop it. It was God's provision that rescued the Jews then, and it'll be God's provision that rescues us now. It'll be the death of Jesus that rescues you and me both now and then. Not what you do. You must receive the provision that God has provided. Remember this verse from John chapter 1? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. It's not about your performance, it's about his provision. Next, that night was the prayer over the breaking of the bread. The prayer went like this Blessed are you. O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with your commandments and commanded us to eat unleavened bread. They would then take that bread and they would dip that unleavened bread in bowls of bitter herbs. And the bitterness was to remind them, the bitter herbs were to remind them of the bitterness of their captivity. Now I think it's at this point that we need to go back to Mark's gospel because we're picking up the story in Mark's gospel at this point. In verse 17, when evening came, he he arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be distressed and to say to him one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve. The one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me, for the Son of Man will go just as it's written about him. But woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed! It would have been better for him if he had not been born. Now I I believe it's the eating of the bitter herbs that Jesus is talking, or that Marcus talking about. Says when he says one is dipping his bread in the bowl with me, I think he's talking about the bitter herbs that point in the in the meal that night. And, and Jesus makes a startling announcement as they're dipping in the bowl of bitter herbs. He says, one of you here, one that I have chosen, one of you is going to betray me. One of you eating at this very moment. Bitter herbs, a bitter betrayal, a bitter announcement. Now, to the credit of the disciples, did you notice this? They didn't start pointing fingers at, at others and saying, oh, it's going to be him, or is it going to be him? That's not what they did. They started pointing fingers at themselves and asking Jesus, is it me? Is it me? And I think they all experienced enough failure to recognize, well, it could be me. I could be the one who's going to do this. I mean, I'll tell you what, that, that takes some uh, humble, insightful, I think, knowledge on their part to be pointing fingers at themselves. And it's something I think we need to recognize that all of us are all of us are capable of failure. Peter had already been rebuked once by the Savior. They recognized this. Mark tells us that Jesus told them that it was one of them dipping his bread with Jesus. John's gospel tells us that Peter leans over to John, who's sitting right beside Jesus and says, ask Jesus who it is. And Jesus says to John, it's the one that I give this bread to. And and he dips it and gives it to Judas. Matthew tells us that Judas asked Jesus, is it me? And I imagine that... Uh, and in that moment, Jesus says, Yes, it's you, and Satan enters him. I imagine that's a private conversation. Jesus says, What you do, do quickly. That was that was obviously private. And so Judas leaves, and there's a commentary in one of the gospels, I don't know which one, that says they think he's going to take care of the meal. They think he's going to go pay whoever he needs to pay for the meal. I'm not sure why they would have thought he had to leave in the middle of it, but, but that's what it says in the text. And Jesus pronounces woe on the man who would betray him. It would be better for him not to have been born. The woe was not just because of what What Judas would do, okay, and the fact that he would be lost forever, but it was because of his shame that would never go away, and people would forever look on him with contempt. I mean, isn't that true? Which one of you would want to be called Judas? And why don't any of you name your children Judas? Because there's contempt on that name. As Mary is remembered last week for her extravagant love, Judas will be forever Known with the shame of selling Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And our culture isn't a shame culture, but in a shame culture, at least, Jesus is saying it would be better that he not be born. And here's lesson three. And of the, of the applicational lessons that I'm going to give you, there's just three. But of the applicational lesson, I, I think this is the one that I want you to, uh, I want you to really grab hold of. And here it is proximity to Jesus doesn't necessarily mean intimacy with Jesus. I haven't repeated any, any of them. but I'm going to repeat this one. Proximity to Jesus, being close to Jesus, doesn't necessarily mean intimacy with Jesus. I mean, this is a sobering lesson. Think about it. Who was Judas? I mean, he was one of the 12, right? I mean, he interacted with Jesus every single day. Well, maybe if you're watching The Chosen, you know they're, they're separated at times, right? Maybe he wasn't with them every day, but he's with them just about every day, interacting with Jesus. He saw Jesus perform his greatest miracles. I mean, the feeding of the 5,000, making the blind to see, healing the sick, raising the dead. He heard the good news preached from Jesus' very own lips. And he also was commissioned by Jesus to go and preach the good news of the kingdom himself, something that he did. And he was given the ability to cast out demons uh, and to perform miracles in Jesus' name. And yet we see him betray Jesus because he loved money and himself more than Jesus. In reality, I'd like to suggest he didn't really love Jesus at all. And that's what's shocking because it means that you can be close to Jesus And it doesn't guarantee that you're walking with him. And you can be close to Jesus and it doesn't necessarily mean that you're intimate with him. So what does this lesson mean for us? It means this, just because you've had a spiritual experience in your past where God really convicted you of something and you felt his presence, presence, that doesn't mean that you're walking in intimacy with God now. Just because you prayed a prayer or you were baptized or God healed you or did something supernatural in your life, that doesn't mean you're walking close to Jesus now. Just because you know the Bible really well, none of this guarantees you have a heart relationship with God or, or that you're active in our weekend services or weekend gatherings or you're, you're active somewhere else and part of a church family. None of that guarantees that you are intimate with Jesus, in the debate over whether one can ever be saved or lost, Judas seems to support the idea that folks who betrayed Jesus never were saved. What does the Bible tell us? What does the Bible tell us, I think, more than once? It says, examine yourself. Examine yourself. Make sure that you're in the faith. Test yourself. Be honest with yourself. Do you love Jesus and do you follow him? I think that's what Judas, Judas wasn't being honest with himself. Proximity to Jesus and Jesus' people does not necessarily guarantee that you are intimate with Jesus and that that you are walking with him. After Judas left, they ate the meal itself, which would have included roasted lamb and vegetables and unleavened bread. Judas was gone. So I, I believe it's just Jesus and the 11, although there could have been other disciples there, but I think it's just the 12 of them now. Mark 14, as they were eating, he took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Probably after they've pretty much eaten the meal, it's winding down. Jesus takes a piece of bread. I want you to kind of put yourself there. They're all sitting around the table. Jesus takes a piece of bread and he breaks it. And he tells his disciples, this bread represents my body that is going to be broken for you. And the very next day, it would be broken for them. In the past, the unleavened bread represented the hurried escape from from Egypt. Remember, they were to make the bread without leaven because leaven, it would have to have time to rise. They didn't have time because they would be leaving the next morning. So eat it unleavened. So that unleavened bread reminded them of the hurried escape that they made uh, from Egypt. But now in the future for us, the broken bread would remind us of the broken body of Jesus. Mark fourteen twenty three. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. After dinner, they would have partaken of a third cup of wine they would say out loud, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, the King of the universe, who has sanctified us uh, with your commandments and commanded us to eat unleavened bread. I will redeem you. Here's the verse they would have quoted. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. This cup that they drank was known as the cup of redemption And it was after this cup that Jesus makes this statement, Mark 14, 24. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of heaven. The apostle, excuse me, the kingdom of God. The apostle Paul says that Jesus called this the blood of the new covenant. So in just a moment, we're going to do exactly what they did. We're going to take bread. It's broken already, but we're going to take the broken bread that represents the body of Christ. We're going to take the cup and remember the blood of the new covenant. But before we do that, can I associate five realities with this new covenant that Jesus instituted with them that night? Here's the first one. This new covenant made the old one obsolete. That's not an it's not an automatic thing. That an old that a new covenant renders the old one as set aside, right? So, for instance, the covenant that Adam that God made with Adam and Eve for them to have dominion over the earth and to take care of the planet—I don't think that's ever been rescinded. I mean, that's our job. That's our that's a covenant God made with us as humanity. We're to take care of His world. That's not a covenant that's been rescinded. Paul makes a huge deal in the letter of Galatians the covenant that God made with the Israelites, the descendants of Abram at Mount Sinai, the the old covenant, the first covenant, the Sinaitic covenant, it it does not do away with the covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 15, where he said that the righteous shall live by faith. It's because of your faith, Abraham, that you're declared righteous. And so Paul makes a big deal. God does not do away with that covenant because we have the Sinaitic covenant. All right. But in this particular case, The new covenant will set aside the old covenant. And here's how I know that, because the author of Hebrews makes that clear. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. Chapter 8, verse 13, testifies to this when it says, "...by calling this covenant new, Jesus was making the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear." Jesus was saying that the Old Covenant, the Sinaitic Covenant that he made with Israel, it would be replaced. In fact, the purpose of the Old Covenant, I would suggest to all of you, was to point to this night, was to point to this event that Jesus was talking about, the beginning of the New Covenant. Sort of like, sort of like if I have a picture of my friend, my, my friend Scott Rank, some of you all remember Scott. I hadn't seen him in 10 years, I'll bet. But he came, to, he came and spent the night with me last week. And I got pictures of Scott. I've seen pictures of Scott on Facebook. You know, it's one of the good things. I see how everybody's getting older, right? What they look like. But you know, when when Scott was there with us, I didn't need to look at his picture. I had the real thing right there, right? And I think that's, the old covenant pointed to this covenant that God would make with all of us. The old covenant was conditional or bilateral. It was an agreement that God made with the Israelites to be his special people, his nation. In the old covenant, the Israelites were required to obey God and keep his law, and in return, he would protect them and bless them. But the new covenant, in the new covenant, God's people, God's nation, wouldn't just be a specific people group, but they would be both Jews and Gentiles who would place their faith in Jesus and and begin to follow him. The new covenant was something God promised years earlier through the prophet Jeremiah. With the new covenant, God brought the old one to an end. And this is just my opinion. And, and so you take it for, for what it is. But I think he punctuated the end of the old covenant in AD 70 when he destroyed the temple and the sacrificial system. Both which were required under the first covenant, he did away with them, destroying them, and uh, they are no more. I think that's God, and and here's, I know some of y'all disagree with me, and I should just keep my mouth shut, but I want to say it anyway. I don't think the temple will ever be rebuilt. Listen to what I'm saying. I don't think the temple will ever be rebuilt, because God's not going to let it be rebuilt, because we are the temple of God. That's what Peter said. Peter said, we are the people of God. We are the nation of God. Not, not one specific nation, but all of us from every nation around the planet. All of us who love and follow Jesus. We are God's people. We are God's nation. And this is the covenant that Jesus is making with all of us. And it's superseding the old one. In the same way that when contracts are renegotiated, the old contract is no more. In the same way, Jesus is saying the new covenant nullifies the old. All right, number two. Here's something else about the new covenant that Jesus is making. He's instituting it through his death. The point of the broken bread and the point of the wine was to show us that the foundation of this new covenant would be established in the death of Jesus, all right? Um, How costly a covenant. Jesus said the new covenant would be his broken body, his shed blood, both metaphors of death. By offering himself in death as a sacrifice and a substitute, Jesus was bearing in himself the penalty and shame that is due to for our sin. Remember, it is God who says that the soul that sins shall die. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. Eat of the fruit, Adam and Eve, and dying you will die. The author of Hebrews said that the death of animals of the Old Testament covered our sin. I mean, not exactly how that works, okay, but in God's economy and God's justice and God's righteousness and God's plan the death of old testament animals covered our sin but the death of Jesus would not cover our sin but would remove it and take it away I mean we've long tried to understand exactly how it is that the death of Jesus is the foundation for our forgiveness the basis for are this new covenant over centuries? Christians have tried; they've come up with all kinds of theories as to how Jesus' death saves us, or, or how it how it accomplishes this. We've come up with what's called the ransom theory, the, the penal substitutionary uh, uh, theory, the um the Jesus the Victor theory. I mean, there's a whole bunch of theories, right? Honestly, I don't exactly know even to this day exactly how Jesus' death removed our sin. But listen to the author of Hebrews. Here's what he says. But when the Messiah arrived, high priest of the superior things of the new covenant, he bypassed the old tent and its trappings in this created world and went straight into the heavenly tent, the true holy place once and for all. He also bypassed the sacrifices consisting of goats and calf blood, instead using his own blood as the price to set us free once and for all. If that animal blood and that other rituals of purification were effective in cleaning up certain matters of our religion and behavior, think how much more the blood of Jesus cleanses up our whole lives, inside and out. Through the Spirit, Messiah offered himself as an unblemished sacrifice, freeing us from all those dead-end efforts to make ourselves respectable. There's our self-effort. So that we can live all out for God. Like a will that takes effect when someone dies. The new covenant was put into action at Jesus' death. His death marked the transition from the old plan to the new one, canceling out the old obligations and accompanying sins and summoning the heirs to receive the inheritance, the eternal inheritance that was promised to them. He brought together God and his people in this new way. However, God designed it, it was the death of Jesus. That saves us. It was his provision, not your performance. It was his sacrifice, his shedding of his blood, his breaking his body on the cross for us. It was his bleeding that makes us clean. I once heard this this illustration, and I love it, and I hope you like it. But two duck hunters are, are out hunting in Georgia, and I don't even know if it's true. I think it is, but I'm not sure. They're hunting in Georgia, and a brush fire has started, and they can't outrun the brush fire. And so the brush fire is coming towards them. And, and what they do is they decide to light a backfire. And they light a back... You know what a backfire is? They light a fire in front of them. So it just as this fire is burning, this fire now burns in front of them, hopefully giving them enough separation between the fire that's coming and where they can be behind the fire. And um, so the law of the Old Testament is is like a brush fire demanding the death, our death for our sins. From Adam, you, you will die to the book of Romans, the wages of sin is death. Because of my sin, I'm caught in the middle with no way to light a backfire. But this is the line I love from this illustration. But the shed blood of Jesus, the death of Jesus is a burned out spot that I can stand. It's a place where I can stand. And how, however all of this works out in God's economy, it's the death of Jesus upon which I stand that one day God, having forgiven me, will give me eternal life with him in his kingdom forever and ever because of what Jesus did for us in dying for us. Number three, the new. Co- I'm almost finished. Hang in there with me. The new covenant was for all of us. The invitation of the new covenant is inclusive, not exclusive. It's, it's for all of us. Everyone is invited. When the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah that they had been looking for, Jesus tells a parable of a king who invited first his own, his own, whatever you call it, uh, hierarchy, lords and whatever they did. They wouldn't come. And so then he says, go out and invite everybody to come. Everybody to come. The old covenant was offered to the Jews, and the new covenant has been offered to the Jews and Gentiles. Anyone and everyone is now invited to be a part of God's nation, of God's kingdom, of God's people. Listen to Timothy, or listen to Paul and Timothy in the letter he wrote to them. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Messiah Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all. See, that's why some people say it's a ransom theory. That's what Jesus, he gave himself as a ransom for us. To be testified in due time, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in the Messiah and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This new covenant is for everyone. It's for everyone. doesn't matter where you're from what your gender is, what your age is, what your race is. doesn't matter. It's for all of us, anyone, whosoever will. Number four, the new covenant must be personally and voluntarily entered. The new covenant has been established for the forgiveness of our sins and for the promise of resurrection and eternal life with God. This new covenant isn't one that God is making with a specific people group regardless of whether they want in or not, this is a covenant that he's making with individual people. It's one he wants to make with you personally. You must take and eat. You must respond to him. Listen, young people, your parents can't speak for you. Hey, guys, your wife can't speak for you. Your children can't speak for you. No one can speak for you except for you. You can speak for yourself, but you alone. Listen to what Paul said to to the church at Rome. Moses writes that the law's way of making a person right with God requires obedience to all of its commands. But faith's way of getting right with God says, don't say in your heart who will go up to heaven to bring the Messiah down to earth. And don't say who will go down to the place of the dead to bring the Messiah back to life again. In fact, it says the message is very close at hand. It's It's on your lips and in your heart. And that message is the very message about faith that we preach. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. Same promise to Abraham. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. As the scripture tells us, anyone who trusts in him will never be disgraced. Jew and Gentile are the same in this respect. They have the same Lord who gives generously to all who call upon him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So listen carefully. Even as Jesus said to his disciples that night, take, eat, and drink. He says to you, take and eat. This is my body. Drink. This is my blood. It's a decision you have to make. So, Here's a rhetorical question, but one for you to answer in your heart. Will you enter into this covenant with Jesus today if you're not already in this covenant? And in the one last thing. The new covenant will take us into the new age. 25. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Actually, I said that wrong. The new covenant will, I don't know how to say it. With the death and resurrection of Jesus, his new kingdom has has begun. He says here he could, have, he could have meant that he'll drink it in his resurrection. In Acts chapter 10 verse 41, look up the verse, it says the disciples ate and drank with him. It doesn't say wine. I guess he could have been drinking water, but most likely they would have drank wine. So he could have meant it then. Or he could have meant that he was not going to drink of this drink until he comes in the fullness of his kingdom at the return of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom here on earth. But either way, his statement makes it clear there will be no more covenants to come there's not going to be any more covenants to come this is it we're in the final stage we're in the we're in the final covenant right that God wants to make through the Lord Jesus this is it you either enter through this covenant or you don't this was the one promised by Jer- the covenant of Jeremiah promised that would come today we're part of the kingdom of Jesus and we will forever be a part of it when he comes again to rule and to reign. And Paul said to the church at Corinth, he said, listen, we proclaim the coming of Jesus every time we take, every time we break this bread and drink this cup. So now we're going to do that. We're going to partake of the bread and the cup. And my hope, my hope is that my shining a light on exactly what happened that night, that... Um, that you, that you will enter into this covenant with the Lord Jesus. Now, i got to tell you something. Paul says in his letter to the church at Corinth, he said, if you're not a part of this covenant, don't take it. Don't take it. Because if you take it, you, you, you what does he say? You don't reap. You, you, you bring condemnation on yourself. So if you, if you don't belong to Jesus and you're not a part of this covenant, then don't take this meal. But if you are, then I invite you to join us. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.